It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello, I'm Kay Wenigle. Thanks for joining me again on another Beyond Zero Science and Solutions show. This show is coming to you via the studios of 3CR Melbourne and is syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcasts on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the PZE Community Show and this show are now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. Today I have a very interesting guest who is described as a thoughtful communicator, a strategic consultant, and a skilled collaborator. Her name is Dr. Alina Dini. As well as being captivated by renewable energy innovation and how it can build long-term financial and climate resilience, she is renowned for leading visionary discussions about the future. Hello, Alina. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Kay. Alina, I'm always excited by visionary discussions, but firstly, can you tell me a bit about your background and what led you to becoming a visionary? Oh, wow. Thank you. And that's such an honor to be uh, referred to in that way. Look, I have had a really interesting set of experiences professionally, having worked in some of the world's most exciting places. So I, I started my career in the California state government for uh, a highly influential and visionary elected official who, who then became a venture capitalist out of Silicon Valley. Uh, and he was among one of the earliest founders of eBay. So he brought to the table this uh, complementary skill set of business and government. And through that, I was impressed by the importance of having those two sectors work really closely together. And that has shaped my thinking um, in terms of my career decision making. So bringing government and industry together to make decisions, I think, has helped create that vision. Adding one more element a bit later on was my experience myself in Silicon Valley. So having worked at one of the world's most exciting startups, Tesla, and having done so as one of the earliest female employees, one of the earliest employees altogether as employee 109. And then finally, the role that I had there was executive assistant to the CEO in the earliest years. So I had the unique experience of having worked for four of Tesla's CEOs in a very short amount of time, culminating with just a tiny bit of support to Elon Musk before moving into another role. So having had exposure to high-level policymaking and high-level decision-making in those two industries was an excellent foundation for me professionally and gave me a unique insight into how some of the world's greatest minds think about some of our biggest challenges. Finally, I'll say that I have had the pleasure of then finishing off this sort of multi-sector experience working in academia and having done so with Again, some of the world's most exciting researchers here coming out of Queensland. So having had that privilege of exposure to great minds has helped me adjust my thinking. Wow, that sounds like an amazing set of experiences. What qualifications did you have to get into those positions? That's a really interesting question because I think my path is un 
clear and that it didn't necessarily lead to the outcome I expected. I, I studied uh, in my undergraduate degree political science in Spanish. And I did that because I was really interested in connecting with people and connecting with culture. And, and it just so happened that the Latin American cultures that I was exposed to through my friendship circles in California influenced my interest in language and culture enough to study the language as, as a major. But as a political scientist, I felt that it was um, a way for me to have a civic duty and, and uh, emulate the altruism that I felt as a person. I really wanted to be an active community contributor. Uh, as my career eventuated, though, and I became exposed to the influencers I mentioned earlier and to unique preferences, such as wanting to be part of a clean technology uh, startup I realized that um, I needed to acquire new skills. So I went out to, to take on a master's and I did so in a joint degree offered by Carnegie Mellon University in business and in policymaking so that I could learn how to present summaries of information to high level decision makers. And then a bit later on, I, I came to encounter a market failure in terms of the diffusion of uh, electric vehicles in Australia. And by that, I mean that, that not a lot of Australians are buying them. And all of the barriers that had been cited by some of the world's greatest minds and uh, most influential parties seemed to be missing something that I was experiencing on the ground. So as a person who really likes to connect with individual people, I, I started to do some sort of side research to see if there was a, a really interesting research question there that could be put through a, a PhD process. And I did do that and, and found that through all of those processes, I was able to create for myself this background of appreciating what happens in the marketplace and how it influences policy decision making so that it can be impactful to everyday people. It's a bit of a pivot along the way or a couple of pivots along the way, but in the end, I'm, I'm really happy with where I've ended up. It sounds like you adapted your qualifications to match your experiences whilst maintaining your altruism. You mentioned working with Tesla, and that in itself would have been an amazing experience. And I understand Mark Tarpening and Martin Eberhardt were the original founders. But can you tell me about your experiences with Tesla? That's right. Yes, Mark and Martin were Tesla's uh, two original founders. The, the, the group of founders grew, as it was decided by courts a bit later on, to five. But um, Mark and Martin were who I understood to be the original founders of Tesla, and they hired me when the company was just uh, finishing its Series D of fundraising because they had grown to the point of needing administrative support for the executive team. And despite having had a, a background in policy, I was doing work in terms of understanding the potential for emissions reduction from the transport sector and how passenger vehicles could play a really significant role nationally in the United States to reduce the overall emissions in the United States. And one of the technologies I had done a little bit of research on was electric cars. So my options were to join Tesla as an administrative assistant or not to join Tesla at the early days. And so I made the obvious decision of, of wanting to be part of this really exciting new development uh, that, that had the potential to really shake up the way that the automotive market evolved. So I, I took on that role 
and had just a fantastic sort of first year learning the ins and outs of running a startup and what it meant to support an executive team and its board. There were many challenges along the way, but because it was such a small company at the time, I did a lot of moonlighting or supporting other teams, mainly the sales and marketing and business development teams. So I found myself sort of in my second year carrying a second lot of responsibility where I supported the business development and policy team in promoting electric vehicle policy, principally with stakeholders in state government and nonprofit organizations. Um, And then because what eventuated in that role to be the most important piece of policy work for Tesla's profitability, I I worked with state government officials and and external stakeholders to establish a um, credit trading uh, program within Tesla because California requires any car companies selling vehicles in the state to sell a certain number of zero emission vehicles depending on its size. And Tesla was the only company at that time producing zero emission vehicles. So all of the other car manufacturers were non-compliant with the regulation, meaning that they had the option of paying a penalty or trading credits with Tesla. It's a really exciting project to be in on the ground floor of and taught me a great deal about uh, what happens behind closed doors of industry now, which is all very public, but learning about how policy, again, and industry work together to, to grow a sector. I've never really looked into the Californian legislation. Can you explain a little bit about the Californian zero vehicle emissions legislation? Basically, the, the California zero emission vehicle mandate, which was brought in in the early 1990s, requires that over time, car makers that sell a certain percentage of vehicles in California, and I believe it's 2%, are required to comply with this mandate, um, which requires them to bring in a certain number of different types of low emission vehicles, one of which is fully electric. And if they are not compliant with this regulation, if they don't produce and place a certain number of the total vehicles they sell in California uh, as zero emission, then they have to pay a penalty. So to use a really simple example, if I'm car brand X and I'm required to produce at least um, 1,000 fully electric vehicles and I produce 2,000, then I fulfilled the quota of credits that are required by my 1,000 vehicles and then I have 1,000 extra that I can trade or sell. And similarly, if if car producer Y is required to produce a thousand and produces none, then they're in the market for those credits other than becoming non-compliant with the the mandate. Isn't it impressive that that mandate was introduced in the 1990s? That was quite visionary. Yes. California has always been a leader in terms of progressing sustainable policies and technologies. And uh, through this particular regulation, the uh, focus has always been on improving air quality in California. So California is a very crowded place. The population of California as a state is greater than all of Australia. And so many policies have been introduced to reduce the pollutants that are emitted by vehicles operating in cities. So places like Los Angeles, where there are very many vehicles on the road and lots of really congested freeways, particularly around the busiest times of day, the air quality is a great risk to health of residents in Los Angeles. So the California government has introduced a number of policies across the spectrum targeted at reducing the amount of air-based pollutants that enter the atmosphere that can um, impose risk to its residents. And that leads me on to another thought about air quality and sustainable transport, the electrification of transport. Prior to COVID-19, extended public transport and shared autonomous vehicles 
was showing promise as strategies for improving transport sustainability. Both options showed cracks when it comes to social distancing and avoiding transmission from surfaces. How do you think the pandemic will shape future directions of sustainable transport? That's a a really interesting question, Kay. I think we've seen a number of drastic shifts in terms of our mental thinking around broader societal problems coming out of COVID. The ones that I'll focus on for the sake of answering your question, I think relate to personal mobility and how people travel. So whereas before we we certainly saw a trend in Australia specifically toward more movement in public transportation or forms of micro mobility like scooters and certainly uh, an interest in in ride share and car share platforms, we know now that many people are comfortable with and capable of doing their jobs at home. So the extent that they might move around and into and out of cities um, has changed. And, and how the market responds to that, I think, remains to be seen because we're still in the middle of this, this COVID management situation. And while it's largely under control in many of Australia's capital cities, there is, hasn't yet been a new normal established. The other piece of that is, is how regularly people move around to other places. So not just traveling in and out of cities for things like work, but how often they might travel, let's say, to houses, you ride share or to, to bars or cafes or these kinds of things. I think greater precaution will need to be taken to favor personal and public health over sustainability. But by the same token, we're seeing a lot of renewed interest in sustainable technology. So I can't remember the exact statistic, but I believe it was referenced in the Electric Vehicle Council's most recent State of EVs report that while there has been a drastic decline in the number of people interested in buying petrol cars, there has been an incline in the amount of interest in buying electric cars. And I think the reason for that is that individuals have noticed that their personal actions and decision-making can have an impact on society at large, whether it's something as simple as washing your hands or putting on a mask or how much CO2 you emit going to and from work using a particular mode of transport. We're now able to appreciate a little bit better the impact of our pre-COVID activity in the world at large. And, And we've seen that reduction in CO2 emissions in large cities with a lot of that activity having halted during lockdown periods. So in summary, I think there's still a lot to be decided um, once we get through this pandemic and have it largely under control, but there absolutely will be a shift in terms of how people behave and move relative to the preconceived ideas about mobility. One of your accomplishments as part of your PhD was advising the Australian government of the, the value of the purchase experience for early electric vehicle consumers. Just recently, and unrelated, I presume, was the South Australian government's announcement of a huge investment in EV charging infrastructure and buying electric vehicles for government fleets. I keep patting South Australia on the back for their great work in the sustainability area, but how visionary did you find the federal government to be? I have been hopeful that the Commonwealth will have taken a a more positive uh, position on the potential benefits of electric vehicles in Australia because there are many. And I often think that the the benefits of electric motoring that are missed or not captured appropriately include the the reduction of air pollutants in in cities, as I mentioned earlier about the California model. So electric vehicles are really the, the healthier choice in terms of urban living. 
for people getting around town. So you'd much rather be behind an electric vehicle than a diesel bus. Number two, electric vehicles offer a great opportunity to plug into the electricity grid and enable things like bidirectional charging or absorption of intermittent renewables, such as excess sun when the sun is shining generated from solar panels or lots of wind that can't necessarily be used at night. So lots of benefits, mainly that relate to the electricity network that the Commonwealth haven't quite captured yet. And the, the final point that I'll make is there seems to be a consensus internationally that the internal combustion engine is a uh, asset that has diminishing returns. And by that, I mean that it's very likely that vehicles purchased today that are internal combustion are not going to have the same level of residual value as electric vehicles because of the way the trends are heading. So um, much like investing in the fossil fuel industry is considered to be antiquated now, we are seeing an, an interesting shift happening globally, especially in terms of foreign investment for emerging technologies. So I, I can't quite understand why the Commonwealth isn't thinking as progressively as some of the state governments. So my hope is that their tide will soon turn. The US has just had a recent um, election and Joe Biden knows climate change is the greatest threat facing America and the world. And he has a bold plan for a clean energy revolution. Do you think he might use his power to help influence Australia to become more cognizant of its responsibilities and act on climate change? Look, it's hard to say. Every jurisdiction is uh, focused on its unique set of opportunities and negotiations. Australia has had eight years of leadership under the Obama administration and a, and a very aggressive suite of pro uh, sustainability policies that were progressed under that era, uh, which were not supported by the LNP-led government. So it's it's not certain to me whether this new US-based administration will be influential in terms of twisting the head of the Australian government in the direction of favorability for clean technology. But I remain ever hopeful. I think what will be more important for impressing upon the policymakers at a national level in Australia is demonstrating to them the genuine interest from the people. And, and that's actually what I'm working on at the moment, coming out of my research and, and now more importantly, uh, as related to the company that I've started, Whirl, for, for Give It a Whirl, I'm focused on really capturing the market attention um, and, and interest of consumers who have expressed that they want to buy an electric vehicle, but they find it to, to access the right information or to experience the products. So supporting them through that process, I think, will be the, the data point that policymakers are looking for, that there is genuine demand for these kinds of technologies in Australia for those people who can afford them. And supporting them in purchasing these technologies will then encourage more affordable and a diverse set of other types of models to come into the marketplace from overseas here, as well as to encourage industry development for other supporting industries. Yes. And Tesla has quite an interesting sales model, doesn't it? It doesn't have the ice manufacturer's distributed sales and dealership model. It sells its cars online. So does that make it more difficult for people to try and select what car they would like when they're looking for an electric vehicle to purchase? I think what's different about that, there's a few things that are different about the Tesla model. First, to your point, that their, their product is available online, so you can actually 
provide your credit card details into your computer and secure the car that you want, the color and the, the, the tires and the caps and all these sorts of uh, specializations without having to, to enter a dealership if, if you choose to do so. If you do decide that you want to experience the car firsthand and take it for a test, what's unique about the Tesla model is that they have stores, which are slightly different from your traditional automotive showroom or dealership experience because Tesla sell only one type of product. They sell only electric cars. And so the people who work at the Tesla stores to sell their electric vehicle products don't have any other obligation to meet um, by way of quota or sales expectations. So they don't have a split incentive. But the conflict for most dealers nowadays is that they have two different types of products to sell and two different types of customers. And that can also be challenging because a great number of those early customers that I referred to earlier seek a place where they can experience an electric vehicle and ask lots of questions. And the only place they know to go is the car dealer. And many of them can't afford a Tesla. So when they go to a car dealer to seek information, they end up sort of spending a whole lot of time, but not necessarily buying. And that can be frustrating for sales participants. This is one of the, the problems that my company is seeking to address or to support the industry with is we can provide expert level education in person through a test drive by a peer in lieu of sending someone to a car dealership where they may not have the greatest experience because they may not be motivated or the salesperson might not be motivated to provide them with the, the best experience as possible. Or perhaps they want to, but they just uh, have priorities that they have to attend to as well. So it's, it is a challenging paradigm, particularly when there isn't government support to enable uh, sales here as it has happened overseas. I certainly had a very uh, stressful time trying to buy my car. Admittedly, that was about five years ago, but the salesman kept insisting that, that I look at petrol cars rather than an electric car. Given that you've identified this issue in your research, how would you actually go about it to allow people to have a proper experience and test drive? Okay, there are a number of different ways that you can test drive an electric vehicle. We mentioned already the car dealership, which uh, can be a positive place to have a test drive. Another is there are a number of owners, uh, electric vehicle owner organizations that have sprouted up uh, in, in locales, including the most well-known and established longest standing electric vehicle enthusiast organization, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association, the AEVA, of which you can sign up to become a member. And they have monthly meetings and sporadic events uh, where electric vehicle owners can convene and get to know one another. And then thirdly, is through my platform, www.giveitaworld.co, where you can come and sign up to meet electric vehicle owners in your community, sign up for a test drive for your preferred brand in your preferred city, and we will arrange for you uh, as many test drives as you like at a time that is convenient for you. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that are interested in exploring those options that you've provided. What are other things that EV owners or potential EV owners looking for? You know, it's interesting. I always tell people that the electric car is the perfect conduit to every piece of the sustainability puzzle because um, most motorists, or sorry, most people are familiar with the idea of motoring or have been in a car before if they don't own one. So they really understand the idea of a car, which is very different to someone wrapping their head around, let's say, an energy storage system or a home battery. That's, that's a slightly different concept that's less familiar. So because people are familiar with the car, once they start thinking about 
a cleaner car, it often leads them to, okay, well, how am I going to charge it? Um, number one question, you know, what are what public charging stations are available? What should I have in my home? Often the next question is, well, I want to be as sustainable as possible. So I certainly want to fuel my car with green energy. So what's the best way for me to do that is to sign up with my electricity retailer for a green energy account? Or is it to change electricity retailers because mine doesn't offer one? Or shall I think about an investment in solar panels on my home? And in the event that I don't own my own home, thinking about whether any of these right for me, given those limitations around charging. So I think charging and the type of energy are often the follow-on questions. And these are the kinds of questions that people who have already gone and done the hard yards around the research can answer for you. So that's what's great about our model and also working with organizations like the AEVA is the expertise that exists in the community of wise uh, owners that come before you that can provide you with that information. Talking about AEVA, they're having their conference at the end of November, November the 27th, and I believe you're going to be speaking at that. What yes, be, yes, I am. I'm delighted. What would you be talking about? My talk is focusing on reimagining the car buying experience. And what I mean by that is that shopping for a car is something that can take as little as a couple of hours. You know, you've always had, for example, a particular brand, you know, that will be the brand that you buy over and over and over again. So for you, it's just a matter of deciding which variant or what color. There are other people, however, who when they shop for a car, they begin doing so the minute they pick up the, the car they're just buying right now. So that process is different for everyone. It's very protracted. And what I think we'll see in the marketplace in the next few years, particularly given the interest now in sustainable technologies, is more and more people thinking more seriously about electric vehicles as their next cars and wanting support in that long process. And so what I will be talking to the audience at the AEVA conference about is what I have gleaned in my research from five years ago about electric car buying and how that has changed most recently as I've done some new work and what I think is necessary to help support those interested parties or shoppers in the next five years. As we know, lots of people are making purchase decisions based on what they see on the internet and the digital research they uh, they complete in their leisure time. And it's often the case that moving to transact a car, as many do at the car dealer, is the last part of the process. So supporting those uh, early electric vehicle, especially enthusiasts, um, in the stages that leads them up to the point of making a decision is my focus. That sounds fantastic. I know there are a lot of people looking at buying an electric car, so I'm sure that they'll be tuning into your talk. You mentioned earlier about the work you've done with the Australian government. But what other work have you done with governments around the world? When I wasn't working at Tesla or in state governments in Australia I uh, and in the U.S., I, I have spent quite a bit of time as, a, as an independent consultant. So um, my husband and I ran a boutique consultancy called Bird and Vision for many years. And through that work, we have advised governments, mainly in the Asia Pacific, um, although a tiny bit in Europe and the U.S., around how to integrate sustainable technologies into their policy making. And why that's important is, as we've, we've discussed earlier around 
um, what might happen under a president-elect Biden administration in the U.S. or what hasn't happened under the current administration here in Australia is that a signal of leadership or of support from leadership in government is incredibly important to support market development for new ideas and particularly clean technologies. And the reason for that is that consumers look for confidence from their governments that new ideas are going to be um, supported. And they seek support through things like, I mentioned residual value or insurances or warranties or servicing or the things that in their day-to-day -day are important to them. So we have in the past advised governments on the significance of having policies like the one we have recently learned about in South Australia walking the talk and having uh, government fleets operate electric vehicles within their own remit is, is an excellent way for, for governments to uh, demonstrate that these technologies are real and they're viable and they're okay for the broader public to use. So having done that has been probably the, the hallmark of my work with governments overseas. Wonderful. Talking about walking the talk, you mentioned earlier about walking the talk in terms of sustainability in the home. And just now you've mentioned electric vehicles and solar panels and charging stations and so forth. What are the other areas of sustainability that people should be looking at in their homes? That's an excellent question. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have learned this year that our individual contributions in aggregate can roll up to equal quite a, a lot um, in terms of supporting broader societal outcomes. So in addition to managing energy use better, which you can do through um, energy efficiency, so introducing you know, more efficient um, appliances when they expire, things like washing machines and dishwashers and televisions are all um, rated by stars. So you can select a, a piece of equipment that uses less energy and then creates less demand on the grid at large. This is one excellent way to, to contribute to um, sustainable outcomes in the home. Another is minding your waste. So whether it be how much you purchase and don't use food-wise or product-wise, buying and using less and throwing out or discarding of less is another excellent sustainable decision. And the third I'll add is that we have seen a tremendous amount of connection with the natural world again in this time of COVID because people have had it taken away from them and now want to go back to it. So, so, so doing whatever you can to reconnect with nature, whether that means walking when you can instead of driving, it's good for your health, it's good for the, the world. Building a, a garden, if you can, or planting a plant is, is an excellent way to improve your local environs as well as your mental health. And I think, you know, supporting the community organizations that are doing the same thing is, is another fantastic way to be sustainable in your home life. Talking about efficient appliances, many people are advocating that we only have electric appliances in the home rather than gas, because gas actually is a very potent greenhouse gas. Do you advocate that? I think, look, my preference has always been for electrically powered technologies. And the reason is those can be partnered with renewable energy generation, which is a resource that uh, doesn't harm anyone to produce. Well, sorry, has a lower footprint of impact uh, than other produced resources. So I, I suppose I would agree with that view, but with a caveat that there are obviously some cases where um, economics come into play. And so those are our valid concern, you know, where, where it is 
your say your home is already wired for gas appliances and it is economically infeasible for you to make the shift, you might focus on making uh, other changes around the home in the first instance to emulate the sustainable lifestyle that you'd like to to do so. But where you have choice and you have option, then renewably fueled or powered electronic resources are preferred. So you've mentioned some of the things that consumers can do in the transition to a carbon-free economy. Where do you think consumers have the most leverage? That's an interesting question. I suppose I haven't thought about it that way. Uh, Look, I think there's an expression you probably have heard before, which is put your money where your mouth is. And where I think consumers have the greatest amount of power is in how they spend their dollars. So where you can make purchase decisions that are consistent with your values, do so, whether that be choosing to not consume animal products, or maybe for you, what's more important is investing in plants than investing in electronics. Whatever it is that is your preference, I think putting your your hard-earned and well-respected dollars in favor of your decision-making is the best way that consumers can be heard. You also talk about enabling women in STEM. Why is that important to you? For me, Female representation in the science and technology sectors is is a passion project. And I suppose for me, it's very personal. I have throughout my career navigated quite a number of traditionally male-led industries. And while I have never had a negative experience with a male counterpart, I have found uh, the absence of a feminine presence to be noticeable. And as a mother of a young daughter, and given the support that we have seen recently for many influential and equally talented female professionals, Jacinda Ardern, Anastasia Palaszczuk, who's just been returned and is one of the most decorated politicians in Australia's history unexpectedly, um, and now with the um, vice president-elect of the United States being um, a a woman and a woman of color, I think it's important to remind our young women that the opportunity for them is whole, um, just because they don't necessarily see leadership or women in leadership roles in certain sectors doesn't mean it's not possible, but, but it's just a matter of a propensity toward men to numbers and science and engineering, it's systemic in the way that our society is designed. And and so I have in my own right as a political science and Spanish major who is not uh, incredible with numbers, pushed myself to to become a technologist because I, I really love technology and I really love people. And I really want to help people find a way to access that. So in, in doing so, I have try to demonstrate that women don't have to be engineers to work for technology companies and they don't have to be mathematicians to be able to to analyze things and be successful. It's important to me that those messages are heard so that we can continue to support young women into leadership roles going forward. Mm, Because I think it's really amazing what you've achieved in this area with the qualifications that you've got. Whereas um, normally, as you say, people would have expected you to be on the engineering or science side of things. Now, if any of our listeners would like more information, can you point them to any particular areas where they might find out more? 
apart from give it a yes, world? Yes, absolutely. So apart from uh, give it a world.co, World also has social media handles um, at shop with World. And I'm also um, accessible at Alina Dini, A-L-I-N-A-D-I-N-I on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I would love to have a chat to anyone interested. And in my honorary role at the Queensland University Technology as an industry fellow, I, I can also be reached there. Terrific. Thanks again for your time. Thank you so much, Kay. You've been listening to Dr. Alina Dinney, Industry Fellow at the Institute for Future Environments, Queensland University of Technology. The Beyond Zero Science and Solutions Show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the shows. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tydra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Alina Dinney, Industry Fellow at the Institute for Future Environments, Queensland University of Technology.